It was a brilliant script, but NBC sort of came back with what everyone was saying back then is political shows never work. You can't do politics on television. That's one of three special guests today, Paul Redford, the award-winning television writer and producer, referencing what you have to call the founding father of all White House TV shows, The West Wing, starring Martin Sheen. Everybody hates politics, and there's nothing at stake. You need people running around with guns, or you need doctors saving lives, or you need lawyers saving lives. No lives saved on this episode and none threatened, but we will discuss the many lives of the Hollywood POTUS in the series wrap-up with Paul Redford and two other special guests. I'm Robert Pease, and this is The Purple Principle, a podcast about political and cultural polarization. And I'm co-host and executive director of Civic Genius, Jillian Youngblood, very keen to speak with Paul Redford, who also wrote for and produced two TV series featuring independent presidents, Designated Survivor, starring Kiefer Sutherland, and Madam Secretary, starring Taya Leone. West Wing was viewed in truly reverential terms by a large audience and critics alike. Bringing together the cast and creators of one of the most iconic shows of the last 20 years. During this whole election crisis, that the president everybody would really want would be Martin Sheen. When they talk about All in the Family and they talk about the Honeymooners, they're going to talk about West Wing along with the Sopranos and all of that. Though not surprisingly, many on the political right were not huge fans of a show featuring a Nobel Prize winning Democratic president, hence the moniker The Left Wing. And not everyone on the left is a fan of The West Wing either, such as our guest today, Luke Savage, a Canadian cultural critic who's written extensively on the show's excesses. There is, you know, uh, the smugness of the West Wing is something that I come back to again and again. And uh, I think it's one of the least attractive features of that show and its universe. Our third special guest today is Dr. Betty Kaklamanidou, a media scholar based near Athens, Greece. And she finds common themes running through the many Hollywood depictions of U.S. presidents. One of these is American exceptionalism. The other is an element sorely lacking in our real-world politics. It doesn't matter whether they are independents, Republicans, or Democrats. They are idealists. They want to do the right thing, irrespective of political games. A lot of White House lawn to cover in this episode, Jillian. And let's watch out for thorns in the Rose Garden as Paul Redford reflects on the originality of Aaron Sorkin's West Wing pilot in 1999 and the long odds against its success over seven seasons, a lifetime in television and especially in politics. We quickly figured out, you know, (laughs) why White House shows and any shows in the executive branch where there's no one running around with a gun are very hard to write because the ultimate goal of everyone on the West Wing or any other political show is to get a signature. You, you need to get the president to sign something. That is, the, that is the object of almost every story in the West Wing. It's all very administrative. Yeah, it's not saving a life. It's not, but you know, the stakes couldn't have been higher because it's always saving the world or saving the country by getting him to sign something or not sign something. And every episode has to end really with the president making a decision, which was a surprise to Aaron Sorkin when he created the show because he just assumed he thought you couldn't do a show about the president. That's kind of overwhelming. Do a show about the senior staff in the White House. And the president, you were just originally meant to see just the back of his head. 
like Larry David plays George Steinbrenner in Seinfeld. He's in the screen, but he's really off screen. And he wouldn't be in every episode. And mostly it would be the drama of everything going around the president. But collectively, we kind of discovered that, no, the president, and that really became clear from the pilot onward, is Martin Sheen needs to be in every episode and the center of every episode, or people just are not going to watch. So we were very lucky to get him. And that defined the show. And then, of course, that extraordinary cast. I didn't know how good we had it, really. None of us did. We were writing the show in a bit of a vacuum. We didn't know if we were going to go into a year two. We didn't know if there was any viability to doing a White House show. Because, again, you know, the rule is it's not supposed to work. So when you started bringing in people from both sides of the aisle, did you feel like you were doing that to broaden the audience or was it really part of the vision of the writers? Were you responding to criticism that the show read kind of too lefty? Where was that um, coming from? Honestly, I think it ultimately came from Aaron and his vision for the show because his constant demand from the other writers was, I need an argument. You give me a good argument, I can write a scene. And therefore, his, Aaron's constant demand was, don't just tell me gun control is a good idea. Tell me why it isn't. Tell me who can convincingly argue against gun control. Tell me someone who can convincingly argue for the death penalty or, you know, all the issues around the death penalty. I'm still very proud of that, that episode we did the first year about Bartlett basically ordering the, you know, the first federal death penalty be carried out in like 20 years and the crisis of conscience for a believing Catholic like Bartlett. I looked for a way out. I really did. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. You know what that means? God is the only one who gets to kill people. I know. Did you pray? I did, Tom. I know it's hard to believe, but I prayed for wisdom. And none came. And never has. Aaron was right. There is no real drama in preaching to the converted. The real drama is hearing all sides and having a convincing opponent. So I love the show. The pilot, I think itself made me want to go into politics. And I eventually worked on Capitol Hill, probably in no small part because of that. Mm. But I've started to notice people kind of my age voicing some criticism about it. We talked, for example, to a fellow Canadian, uh, Luke Savage, who's a journalist. He writes for Jacobin, um, The Atlantic, a couple other publications. And he was kind of arguing that the West Wing ruined Democrats and that it gave us this (laughs) false... Gave us like this false, um, gave Democrats a a sense that like, if you could just get everybody in the room, we're all very reasonable people and we can work this out. And he was saying that's demonstratively not true. I just think there was a, just a different standard. And I think we were coming in just as a real shift was happening. And you can point to Gingrich, you can point to, you know, the ending of the fairness doctrine and the rise of of right-wing radio and Fox. But there really became a point in which we were unable to dramatize in West Wing and really weren't that interested in dramatizing it because it was inherently undramatic in this this idea of politics as war, that everything is justified because your opponent is not just your opponent, your opponent is an enemy and your opponent is an existentially bad person. You know, that makes for entertaining 
you know, 24-7 cable news because outrage is always far more interesting than discussion. You know, I think it was Henry Adams who originally said, politics is the systematic organization of hatreds. And, you know, that was the discovery, I think, in the 90s and in the early 2000s is like, oh, yes, you can organize hatreds and that is the way to ascend to power rather than organizing interests. Organized hatreds, Jillian, and most of that organizing recently seems to be into two polarized camps. Yeah, but also with a bunch of not-so-venomous Americans in the middle or on the sidelines kind of wondering what happened to, like, common ground and common interests. A lot has changed since West Wing first aired 22 years ago, and that may explain some of the criticisms of the show, certainly from the right. But not so much from the left. And that's what's interesting about our next guest, Luke Savage, a Canadian cultural critic who often writes for left-leaning publications. His article for Current Affairs a few years ago really caught our attention. It's entitled How Liberals Fell in Love with West Wing and memorably describes the show as an elaborate fantasia. And quoting Luke again, a smugness born of the view that politics is the perpetual pitting of the clever against the ignorant. And therefore, quote, a series of glittering illusions to be abandoned. And I remember watching The West Wing in high school and finding it so inspiring. And then I tried watching it a couple of years ago and was like, oh, this is this is a bit silly. And it seemed, you know, like the gender dynamic seemed very anachronistic. And I saw that you had written about, um, maybe you called it toxic. Um, and I was curious, what led you to criticize The West Wing? Well, my own arc with the show, I think, is very similar to yours in that I think I discovered it towards the end of high school and kind of maybe early in university. I watched a lot of it and I really did enjoy it. But the show really is ubiquitous in the culture, you know, and all kinds of shows have fandoms after they go off, you know, after they go off the air. But I think The West Wings is really something different. I mean, it's seen as almost a documentary by a lot of the people who watch it. And I think some of its greatest fans are people who, you know, work in the media, perhaps work in influential perches in the political world. And I think, you know, many of its characters are people with Ivy League backgrounds. In fact, that's something that the show loves to remind us of. Uh, It reminds us over and over again. The Rob Lowe character, I think there's just a scene where he just lists his credentials. Tell Kay that I'll do it. Are you kidding? Tell her I'm a magna cum laude graduate of Princeton and editor of the Duke Law Review. Tell her that I've worked for congressmen and the DCCC. I have seven years at Gage Whitney. And for the last four, I've served as deputy communications director and senior counselor. A valid point there about the snob factor, but we're also curious about Canadian TV and whether there have been shows with political content that have transcended the political divide. Well, Canadian TV is a very specific thing, so it's kind of, it's the wrong country to ask it about. You know, our TV is mostly about sort of intercultural exchange on the prairies at the end of the 19th century and things like that. We don't have as many political dramas up here. Part of the reason for that actually is because American politics is is totally ubiquitous up here as well. Everybody kind of hates the spectacle of American politics, but no one's really able to look away. If you're in any public place in a major city in Canada where there are kind of like public TV screens, like a a gym or a dentist's office or something like that, you're probably going to see CNN and they're going to be talking about the reconciliation bill. 
Yeah, we also saw a report, I think it was on CNN, in fact, that Canadians were concerned about maybe U.S. polarization and partisanship creeping north in the most recent election. And the examples that were cited in that article seemed very tame by our standards. But was there a feeling that things got a little like too personal in this last election? I mean, in many ways, it was kind of ugly election because it, you know, it was kind of called early. It was considered a kind of unnecessary election in many ways. It was, but then it was also overshadowed by, you know, there's a, a obviously a very vocal minority that is opposed to things like vaccine mandates, um, and so yeah, that certainly added a tincture of ugliness to the campaign. Yeah, although even the phrase that you use, tincture of ugliness, I would say we have tankers of ugliness <laughs> down here. Um, Fair enough. Which leads to our next excerpt. This is from a fellow Canadian, if I can say that. Jay Van Bavel is a neuroscientist at NYU. He's a real expert on sort of psychological, if not neurological foundations of polarization. Yeah. The interesting thing about that multi-party system is if you decide that you don't like the Liberal Party, you could vote for the new Democratic Party, and yet you still don't have to vote for a party you dislike. Whereas in the United States, it's very much if you don't like your party, it feels like the other party is going to win because it's a zero-sum game of two teams. And I've written about this in publications that I suspect that's part of why two-party systems are more susceptible to partisanship and polarization. Yeah, and I should say I'm sympathetic to much of that, quite sympathetic. I mean, having a multi-party system does make a big difference. Canada's democratic institutions, its electoral system in particular, are also not without their fair share of problems. You know, we have this first-past-the-post voting system. Uh, we have very much, you know, different weights given to your vote depending on where you live. But with all of that said, I agree with a lot of um, what was just said in that clip. And having a multi-party system is a big reason, as the speaker identified, for why perhaps the political conversation in Canada is less fraught and less kind of riven with these culturally tribal divisions. You know, Canada's you know, universal health insurance is a really good example of that. I mean, the political consensus around it is completely impregnable. Like you couldn't, even a, a conservative politician would probably be too afraid to criticize it because it's so broadly popular. And there are lots of people who vote conservative who are big supporters of, you know, socialized medicine. That's a much greater social binding agent. It's a much more effective way of dialing down culture war and social division than going the President Bartlett route, where you give speeches that are kind of meant to heal the nation and bring everyone together. But then the business of politics kind of carries on as usual. That was Luke Savage, Canadian cultural critic, on what he feels is the toxic naivete of West Wing. And Jillian, as we record this episode amidst a huge amount of legislative gridlock on issues widely supported by most Americans, you got to say Luke has a point there about a reality disconnect. He does. But when did fictional TV shows claim to be about reality? I mean, even reality shows aren't really about reality. And our next guest, Dr. Betty Kaklamanidu, speaks to that point. She's an associate professor in film and TV theory and history at Aristotle University of Thessaloniki and co-editor of the book Politics and Politicians in Contemporary U.S. Television. We kick off the interview with an obvious question that has an interestingly obvious answer. How does a Greek scholar become interested in U.S. television and film? 
This all started in my childhood because uh, there were only two national operating channels in Greece. So they showed uh, all American films every day. So I grew up watching basically the history of the Hollywood studio era from uh, silent films to the first uh, genres, film noir, westerns and everything. So by the time I was 18, I was fully educated on American culture. Well, let's talk a little bit about the West Wing. It is kind of the show of shows or the archetype that many shows have either consciously tried to emulate or avoid. We did talk to a cultural critic in Canada who felt that looking back on the West Wing, it's it's just very smug. It's just very superior and condescending. And, you know, it may have even in an inadvertent way, and, he, and these are my own thoughts here, contributed to polarization. I think that from a, a perspective of a foreigner, because I am a Greek citizen, so I see and I comment on what's going on in American uh, television from afar. I don't live there. So that's very important also to take into consideration. I find that there is one thing that is constant in all political shows. It is The constant is American exceptionalism, that no matter what, No matter what happens, no matter which party is in power, the idea that America is the the only country that can save the world is palpable for me as a foreigner. Well, you point that out in your book, and I think that's an interesting contradiction that these creators are spending so much time showing the corruption and the dysfunction and the egomania and all of these things that make American politics so ineffective. And at the same time, you're saying, but on the other hand, we're the best hope for the world. When you have like in House of Cards uh, in season four, we have the new villain who is uh, the president of Russia, Petrov. And you see that Petrov is even worse than Underwood. Then you say, okay, the lesser of two evils. And also America is going to spread democracy. Whereas the other guy will not. It will trample upon human, basic human rights and civil liberties. So I'll go with the one that at least upholds basic human rights and civil liberties. So I'll go with the American. Well, we might have had a bit of a vacation there from some of those values. Uh, but I do want to play a clip from the writer Paul Redford, who interestingly wrote for not only the West Wing, but also for Designated Survivor and Madam Secretary. Honestly, in the day-to-day just storytelling, I was never sure how to do it. The independence winds up being some version of moderate. (laughs) It's like, well, you have good points and you have good points. And I'm all for moderation, and I know that's what politics is all about, but that makes it intrinsically undramatic. I understand that, and I feel that the only show that accomplished that, in a way, to a certain extent, is Danish uh, political series Borgen. If we are to create a new Denmark together, we will have to invent a new way of talking and a new way of behaving in politics. It may be that words such as socialism and liberalism, solidarity, are words that describe the world of yesterday, not of tomorrow. 
A modern world is one of variety and our democracy must be too. A vote for the moderates tomorrow is a vote for a new Denmark. Thank you. And I think that that show in the beginning of the new millennium, that show is the best political show ever made. But at the same time, even in that show where we have a coalition government and we play with different political voices, not just two, there are still the two major parties. Even in Greece, and if you watch national governments around Europe, this polarization exists. It's not only happening in America. It's happening in Greece as well. Well, that's unfortunate. But we also want to discuss one of the shows we highlighted in the series that did do well with foreign audiences. That's Designated Survivor, created by David Guggenheim. I'm sure you recall the premise is a horrific attack during the State of the Union address, wipes out the government, and a low-level cabinet member who isn't independent, Tom Kirkman, played by Kiefer Sutherland, he becomes president. I think everyone was really excited uh, at the network side about having an independent lead, specifically for a lot of reasons. One, you hadn't seen that. Usually it is. It's usually, you know, a Bartlett. And our whole thing going into the show, like my point of view about it was, let's be like the anti-West Wing whenever possible. You know, Bartlett was a governor. He was a politician. You know, he was a brilliant politician. But the idea is this is supposed to be an every person. This is supposed to be, you know, Mr. Smith goes to Washington. But uh, at the same time, I will have to reiterate that for the foreign audiences, Kiefer Sutherland as president is uh, more attuned to Bartlett in the West Wing because he is this idealist. He is the person who wants to do the right thing, who abides by an ethos and ethics of Kantian proportions. And you know, Kantian philosophy and ethics is, is the hardest ethics to follow. So you see a little bit of a commonality between the way these presidents are depicted despite the different labels. As well, exactly. And I would add to this equation, Madam Secretary's uh, female character, who becomes also president uh, in the end. But I would add to this group of idealist politicians. Don't endorse Evans. Run as an independent. What? It's either that or leave the country in the hands of Evans, a spineless puppet for special interests, or to Fred Reynolds and the other party, a clueless isolationist. With the right support and an aggressive enough ground game, we have a fighting chance. Wouldn't you rather go out fighting? If we're gonna make history, let's make the good kind. All right, Betty. Well, we also talked to each of the creators in this series about what show would you do now, seemingly post-Trump, if not yet post-COVID. And it was very difficult for them to say. So, for example, the Veep showrunner, David Mandel, he said things got so dark they had to stop Veep. They couldn't do satire anymore. And now he thinks it's time for something more aspirational. And I do believe... The time is right now for a West Wing, basically. Like, I think the West Wing reboot right now would be the show I want to see. Because, again, we got as dark as you could get, and we got off the air while we could. And I think the time is now to sort of show the good of what government could do or the possibility of government, that you just have to run counter to it. 
Do you think it's really possible to go back to a show that was already a bit smug and idealistic two decades ago? Actually, I think it's uh, the whole idea of repetition and variation that Umberto Eco uh, already wrote uh, in the 80s. Everything we are watching, everything we are consuming, every kind of content actually has been created in the past. So basically, I think that we can have both in the political narrative arena, let's say, in television, we can have another West Wing, a different West Wing, like Madame Secretary, and we can also have a new house of cards, but with a new perspective. I'm sure, and I've read a lot of articles commenting on how the figure of Trump actually destroyed artistic creation because it was this uh, paradigm of how reality surpasses fiction at some point. But I'm very confident that uh, political uh, narratives will re-emerge, not now, not today, not in two years' time, but they will re-emerge. For instance, last year, Succession, the HBO drama about this uh, billionaire's family, won a number of awards. This show that depicts a single family and the problems they have is actually a miniature of a mini government with the dad as the president and all the kids and the nephews and whatnot as his government. So we will use other generic formats to comment on the political realities of uh, the American uh, political landscape, I think. That was Dr. Betty Kaklamanidou, media professor at Aristotle University of Thessaloniki in Greece. She's written extensively on U.S. political films and TV series. And unlike some Hollywood creators we've spoken with recently who are still shell-shocked from the past few years of political realities, Betty's confident there will be new variations on old themes in U.S. political shows. Including the theme of idealism in White House TV dramas that some critics do find naive and smug, but if done well, as with The West Wing, many viewers cannot resist, reality notwithstanding. Does that mean some more West Wings in the making at the cynical time in politics where so little gets done and there's polarization not just between the two major parties, but within each party as well? We put the question of a possible reboot to writer and producer Paul Redford, a major creator behind that, yes, very idealistic, and yes, some would say sanctimonious, but still so powerful political drama, The West Wing. And we get his thoughts on shows he's worked on more recently, such as Designated Survivor and Madam Secretary. West Wing came along and kind of filled a need that nobody knew was there, but it was a need to kind of believe again. And, you know, I'm as cynical as the rest. I come from this strange, I think, helpful perspective is that I grew up in Canada. So, and I'm still much more a fan of Canadian politics or parliamentary politics, British politics as a spectator sport. I think it's a lot more fun, <laughs> fun to watch. You have a lot more options. You have multiple parties, which is, you know, so many people since West Wing would come to me and say, well, you have to adapt Borgen, this great Danish show about this, this third party candidate who becomes, you know, prime minister of Denmark and, you know, her family. Yeah. And I said, it's a great show and it's exactly what you can't do in this. 
in the American system. We will never have an effective third party thing where you could have this heroic, you know, idealists who are in it, which you do get in, in multi-party systems. You worked on West Wing, then moved over to Designated Survivor. Do you think that show successfully moved away from the West Wing archetype and created the heroic independent we lack in real oh, world yeah. politics? Yes, very much so. I mean, David's a good friend. I loved his pilot. I was thrilled when he asked me over. And it was, you know, to bring my West Wing experience. But I think one of the most sort of useful things I could say in the room is, guys, nobody's looking for West Wing here. This is not West Wing. This is a, um, for one thing, I think we had the benefit that it was, I, won't, I don't want to say a fantasy, but it was certainly and out there, you know, it was a speculative premise. It wasn't, the show wasn't promising you're going to see, you know, some realistic look at a White House. It was what would happen if government blew up? What would happen if the worst happened? And I think we quickly figured out, uh, David and the rest of us, this is actually a drama where certainly Kiefer wants to be an independent, and, you know, and certainly that, that's what Kiefer's playing. And, you know, and David very, I think, brilliantly, you know, if you look at the premise of that pilot, he was an outsider, even in the cabinet. He came from another world. And how about Taya Leone in that respect? Was she into the indiness of this character? And what kind of preparation did she do for the role? I think she was very into it. And honestly, I don't know what Taya's politics are, other than, you know, she plays an extraordinarily intelligent, self-possessed woman better than anybody, because she is that in real life. I mean, you know, her level of education, her level of smarts, as well as just her, you know, emotional convictions as an actress. I mean, obviously, Madam Secretary was, you know, the fantasy of Hillary as president. And I think uh, Madam Secretary was a post-Iraq war drama, because I think we did want to see some idealism in our foreign policy and some kind of independence and honesty in, you know, how we deal with the rest of the world. You've described this kind of us versus them dynamic that's obviously gotten more and more intense in recent mm -hmm. years. We've talked to some political scientists who would call it affective polarization. And right. a lot of people point at that for one of the, the root components of polarization today. Do you think that with that dynamic becoming so intensified. Could you write The West Wing today? Like, could you write an aspirational political TV show today? Um, well, you know, Aaron keeps talking about going back and casting uh, Sterling Brown or someone as the first black president and doing it again. But I don't think his heart is really in it. I don't know how you'd do The West Wing now. I really don't. Because whatever party you make them, and that's the problem, you will have at least 40% of your intended audience calling bullshit. I mean, saying, no, you're not bringing out how truly depraved these lefties are, or you're not bringing out how truly amoral and power hungry these Republicans are. It's, here's the thing. In West Wing, I think we were showing something that you couldn't get on cable news, that you couldn't get in the pages of The Atlantic. You know, we were showing you we were showing you characters. We were showing you, you know, you were invested emotionally as well as intellectually, as well as tribally and politically. It was also a bit of a romance in West Wing. There was a romantic aspect about it, which I think 
that's the first thing that Aaron and I connected over was our love of, uh, of Shakespeare and the history plays. I've done most of them as an actor. And the elevation, at the same time, there's this sort of the clarity about the power and emotion. There's a grandeur and a beauty to those plays, which you want, you aspire to, you know, in political dramas and very rarely achieve. But I think, you know, it's to Aaron's credit, he was always reaching for it. And people generally do choke up at the West Wing on both sides, I think, in a way that they don't on any other show. That was our featured guest today, Paul Redford. Looking back on the success of that, shall we say, George Washington of White House TV shows, The West Wing. But Paul's also hedging a bit by saying, you know, George would have a hard time running for office today. I think I could sell tri-corner hats on Etsy, but nobody would buy the cherry tree story. Or the river crossing. Oh, and there is the matter of, oh, you know, slavery and the Native American wars. It's a different age, markedly different today than two decades ago when West Wing was a fixture in American living rooms, let alone two plus centuries ago. But there's still a lot of creativity in Hollywood and other production companies around the country and the world. Several interesting references today to the Danish show Borgen. We're going to have to check that out. And Dr. Kakla Manidu references the HBO show Succession as a political parable, or a new variation on an old theme. We hope you'll check out these shows, maybe going back to West Wing for a refresher course, and on to some of the post-West Wing efforts to reach a broad audience with political content. We started off our Purple Principle series with Rod Lurie, TV creator and film director, he was the first to cast an independent American POTUS, Gina Davis in Commander-in-Chief. It was female-centric, and the fact that we were diverse, and the fact that we were dealing with an independent. And something else that's really important to understand is that independent doesn't necessarily mean that you're middle of the road on everything. And so... That is the approach that we took and maybe should have taken even more zealously. Then in episode 12, we spoke with David Guggenheim about his show Designated Survivor, starring Kiefer Sutherland as indie president Tom Kirkman. So it was really important. And I think, you know, Kiefer was very adamant, too, that we keep it an independent because that way we can do both sides of an issue. And the idea is this character is going to come in and heal a country that was in chaos and what better healer than someone who's coming in as an independent as opposed to, you know, adhering to one party over the other. And we had the distinct pleasure in episode 17 of speaking with showrunner David Mandel about the iconic satire Veep, which skewered the malignant narcissism of American politics. Selena was a horrible person and she was offensive, and yet she was also a politician. And you had to let her be offensive to show how horrible she was. We hope you enjoyed this series on Hollywood Presidents. If you have other guest or topic suggestions on cultural aspects of our unfortunate polarization, please let us know. Next time on The Purple Principle, we're turning away from TV screens and toward the filter bubbles that help shape our polarization. And with our uh, potentially heated holiday discussions on the horizon, we'll be learning how to converse across the political divide. Our special guest will be Dr. Tanya Israel, professor at UC Santa Barbara and author of the book Beyond Your Bubble, 
She'll be working with Jillian here, a longtime Jets fan, on getting beyond her anti-Tom Brady partisanship. I'm so glad you brought up something that's so central to our democracy. If I'm in a different perspective than Jillian, I guess I would start by saying, you know, Jillian, really be curious to hear more from you about your feelings about Tom Brady. That's just not going to happen. Some political football next time on The Purple Principle as the holidays approach. We hope you'll join us then. Support us on Patreon as we plan season three. Connect with us via social media and review us on Apple Podcasts. Your interest and support keep us going. This has been Robert Pease and Jillian Youngblood for the Purple Principle team. Allison Byrne, production and audience engagement. Kevin A. Klein, senior audio engineer. Dom Scarlett and Grant Sharrett, research associates. Emma Trujillo, audio associate. Original music composed and created by Ryan Adair Rooney. The Purple Principle is a Fluent Knowledge production. 